Think about it. Two bodies of water. Two bodies of water. Both are fed by the same river. The Dead Sea is fed by the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee is fed by the Jordan River. Both have water coming into it. Same water, yet one is dead and one is alive. One is teeming with, with fish. Fishermen go there even to this day and catch fish, and their professional fishermen go there. Yet there's this other body of water that is, has the same water coming into it, same source, yet it's dead because it doesn't give its water away. It is a reservoir. The other body of water, the Sea of Galilee, has the Jordan River feeding into it. It's alive. It has fish living in it and other animals that are alive that like to come and drink this water. Yet this water, the reason it's alive is because not only does it receive, but it gives away its water. So it's moving. It's in and out. This body of water is in and in and in and dead. Two bodies of water, both coming from the same source. One's dead, one's alive. Same with us. We as followers of Christ have the same source. He feeds us the same living God DNA. We have a choice what we will do with what he's given us. If we only take and don't give, we are dead. But if we take and give, we are blessed. Two bodies of water, one stagnant and dead, one alive. At the end of the cross-country season this year, my daughter Hannah runs for Fairfield cross-country. And she was a senior this year. It's her last year. And so they have a sectional meet right here nearby. And so we decided that obviously we'd go and watch the team. And our desire was to see Fairfield Cross Country travel on and make it to the regional. In order for them to do that, they had to finish in the top five of teams that were there. And so if you've ever been to a a large cross country race, they line all the teams up across, they go out for a run out, they they stretch, they pray together, they do the rah-rah, and then they come back and they get prepared to take off again. There were a whole bunch of teams from this sectional that were lined up. And so I decided to try to inspire the girls or encourage the girls or try to pull something out of them. We wanted them to win the sectional. It's Hannah's senior year. And we decided that, that we would do whatever we can. So they're gathered by the start line. So I decided I'd go up and I went up to the girls and I said this. I said, Hannah. And I looked at the girls. I said, if you win this sectional, if you not win, but if you qualify for the regional in the top five, the senior dads will jump in the stagnant pond behind Fairfield High School. Now, if you've ever seen this pond, it is stagnant. It is dead. It has green muck about this deep on it. And no one lives nearby or lives in it. It is a, a body or a reservoir that's fed, but it doesn't go out. And so we're standing there and ready for this rest. And honey, if, if, and I looked at the girls. I said, if you girls, if you win this or qualify for the, the regional... I'll jump and Hannah's in the front row right now in the lake. Didn't I, Hannah? I told you that. She's sitting there. She's, I'm pointing right at her here, about right here, right here she is, over in the lake. And so she was pretty excited about it. The girls were like, really? I said, yeah. But I didn't tell the senior dads. They let them know that I had volunteered them for that. So 
I knew they were game for it. It's a bunch of great dads. So anyhow, you, know, you run the race, and you're trying to count off, and it's a calculation of points, and get to the end of this race, and you go down to the award ceremony. You know, in my mind, I'm trying to, did we beat Northwood? Did we, you know, we're trying, we've got to finish ahead of them. And, and so we finally get to this award ceremony, and they, they, I think they go from 10 down to, to 1, or 8 down to 1. And so they go 8, 7, 6, and, and we realize that Northwood finished or six, I think. That was the team that finished six. And I realized I'd done the math that we're in, and I'm in too. <laughs> and so the girls advanced. It was a great job by the girls. So we decided, we planned a night that we would go to Fairfield High School and we would jump in this dead sea behind Fairfield High School. And so we ran out, and the guys were there, and a couple other dads joined in. And along the outsides of this pond area, this reservoir of water behind Fairfield High School, stood the wives and, and some of the, the boys cross country, and they were watching. Anne was directly on the other side. And so there's this dock. And so we decided, by the way, we couldn't see what was in the water. I didn't know if there was poles sticking up. or I mean, it was a life or death situation. I figured, what a way to go out, though. I mean, just, it's the way to go. I mean, for Hannah. And so I said, all right, let's go. And we just, three, two, one. And we all ran and jumped in this body of water. And green muck went everywhere. And Anna's on the other side. And we're swimming. I mean, when I went in, it was just, oh, I was just, and it was clinging to me and swam across and thinking, I would only do this for you, Hannah. That's just, and going across on the other side. Meanwhile, Anna's on the other side. And she said, and we came out, and the ladies were just like, we're back. And I was just, and Anne said, Jim. When you jumped in that water, she said, the smell, the stank, she just lifted off the top of that thing and just, it was dead. Yet, if you were to look back where we jumped in and we swam across, including Kurt Huntsberger, the cross-country coach, if you would see, there was this break and there was this clear path that we had stirred the water up. It had moved. But prior to that, it was green. It was stanky. It was whatever you can wrap your mind around. It was not a place for senior dads to be in. It was a picture of death. Because it had a source of water coming in, yet it wasn't going out. The Bible tells us this. That all of us have been given something from God. We've been given resources. We've been given talents. We've been given abilities. We're not supposed just to hold on to them. We're supposed to take them, receive them, and then give them away. We're supposed to be generous with what we've been given. And there should be an uncommon generosity about the way we live our lives. God's given to us. We're supposed to give it away. And when we give it away, we are blessed. If we hoard it, we become like the Dead Sea. In your mind right now, think of a generous person. Just a generous couple, a generous family. Picture what they look like. Picture what comes to mind when you think about them living in the community and walking into your life. Think about their facial countenance. Now picture someone that's not generous. Someone who's very tight with their resources, that squeaks when they walk. That doesn't ever do anything with, in a spontaneous way that, that literally holds on to the resources, their talents and their abilities like it's theirs and they, they, and they don't need to give it out. One's dead, one's alive. The difference is this, one's generous, the other one isn't. Today we're going to go on a journey and we're going to see what it is to be an uncommon, generous Christ follower. One in which we receive, 
we give away. Not we receive and we hoard and we keep it to ourselves. One's alive, one's dead. In order for us to do that, we have to begin with our finances, with our resources, with our money. Because the Bible says this, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. In other words, just go look at your heart. If you can physically look at your heart, everything that you love, everything that you spend stuff on, everything that, that's valuable to you is attached to your heart. There's this penance, they're pinned to your heart. And all these things are attached. If we could open our hearts, boy, there's what she is attached to. There's what he is attached to. Everything we do comes from our heart. The Bible says it this way. Just listen. In Matthew 6, it says it this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The best thermometer for your heart is what you do with your money. Seriously. I mean, you just want to take a gauge of your heart. You want to take a gauge of whether you're generous it's what you do with your money. Just stick a thermometer on that portion. And right now, some of you, you're, you're just locking me out. You're thinking, oh, you're going to talk about money. Yeah, I'm going to talk about money. And I'm going to, because God has given us money. And God has given us everything we owe. And we're supposed to be responsible with what he's given us. In this room are a variety of believers. Some are new, just came to Christ. And some have been Christians for a long time. Some have been generous their whole lives. Some have been tight their whole lives with what God's given. Some don't know what they're supposed to do. And in order for me to lead you, I need to tell you what God's word says about our resources and about our money. Listen to this though. Philippians 3.20 says it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from where? The Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not living here. This is not home, so don't hold it so tightly. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word of God in New Testament says we're alien and strangers just passing through. But what happens in this journey here impacts what happens when we get there. Psalm 24 verse 1 says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who are in it. Deuteronomy 8.18 says it this way. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Think about that for a second. We are not able to do whatever God has called us to do based upon our own gifting and our own ability. God gave us the ability to do that. And the minute we think we can do it without him is the minute he begins to remove that from us. If we think that we're just this great welder because it's just something that, that we learned on our own. No, God's given you the skill path. God's given you the tech ability. God's given you the knowledge to be able to do that. If you think that you're a good athlete because you did it all your own. No, God's given you that ability. If you think you're a good banker because of that. No, God's given you that ability. If you think you're a good businessman. No, God's given you that ability. And so when we begin to recognize the things that we do well are because God's initially has given us. He has fed us that from the Jordan River to us. But what we do with it is important. And everything I, I, I did, Acts says, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus said himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Everyone understands that. When you give away something and you know it blesses someone, not only are they blessed, but you are blessed. So our lives are supposed not to be reservoirs that are stagnant and dead, 
But our lives are supposed to be alive and well that's fed and gives away where there's life-changing reservoir. So the question is this, are you the Dead Sea or are you the Sea of Galilee? I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 6. And I'm going to show you what God thinks about the way we handle our possessions and our finances and our money. He takes it seriously. If you need a Bible today, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to give you one. If not, you don't need a Bible, please turn to your own Bible. And look at Joshua chapter 6 and verse 27. God gives us some principles here regarding our possessions, our finances, our money. And so God's given us an an example in Scripture that he takes it seriously what we do with what he has given us. And if we misuse it, and if we misappropriate what he's given us, God takes it seriously. And there's causes for what we do. There's an effect that takes place as a result of what we do. Joshua chapter 6. Let me set this up. Just prior to this, in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 27, the Israelites had just won the battle of Jericho. And if, you, if you're not a student of that, many, many are, and they remember this story, but there was this walls in, in Jericho that were tall and big. And so God had this plan. He told Joshua, if you march around these walls, if you march around these walls, go around these walls at a certain time, if you stop and yell and break some glass jars, the walls will come tumbling down. In other words, if you do what I said you should do, then the enemy will be defeated. So literally, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Joshua marched around, his people marched around, and at a certain time, they all yelled, and, 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 and they break some jars. And you know what happened? The walls came tumbling down. You would think after that, that everyone in the land that wasn't the Israelites saying, boy, they got a big God. They got a God that's huge and strong. All his people have to do is speak, and we did. We, we did. You would think that somehow that would be just running through the land. Well, in fact, it was. Stand with me, and we're going to read Joshua chapter 6 and verse 27. And chapter 7 and verse 1. We're going to read two verses. Let's read these. 6, 27 and 7, 1. Ready? Read. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You may have a seat. It's interesting when you pack those two verses back to back. One verse says this, Joshua's fame was spreading throughout the land. You would think that the very next verse was, he went and conquered some more towns and cities and kings and people. Yet the very next word The first word, you know it's going south when the first word of a sentence that follows a great victory is the word but. But the Israelites acted, what's it say? How did they act? Unfaithfully. Look at verse one. In regard to the devoted things. So God was upset. And it says that his anger burned against them. Let me just say this. There are times we have a righteous God who's a God of grace and a God of mercy. Yet there are things that we can do that God's anger burns against us. He's upset with us, as a father would be with his children. But he acts in a perfect way, and he gives grace and truth. But there are times that he's just outright angry. And here's an instance of God is angry not at the enemy, but at his own people because they acted unfaithfully to him. Look at verse 2. 
Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Verse 3, when they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So in other words, here, here, here's, here's the paraphrase. We're going to go up. Let's take the starting five. We're going to kick their butts. Let's go home. That's the picture. We don't need any reserves. This is an easy victory. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the undefeated team, number one ranked against the team that no one knows about. In fact, we scanned them out. I mean, they can barely dribble the basketball. We're going to go up and we're going to conquer. Don't worry about this, Joshua, Okay. We got this one covered. Besides, we're the people of God. We just talked and the walls came tumbling down. That was the mindset, which was the proper mindset. But look what happens next. So it says in verse 4, about 3,000 men went up. But, you know when you see a but, it's changing direction. They were routed by the men of Ai, verse 5, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. In other words, they wiped them out. At this, the hearts of the people, what? What's your Bible say? Melted and became like what? Water. How did it happen so quickly? Why did they get defeated? When the spies went there and said, we can defeat these people. I mean, this is a, a guaranteed victory. We're going to win this thing. Yet, the enemy pushes them away, kills 36 of them, chases down the rest of them on the slopes, and wipes them out. How could that happen? But do you remember? Look back in verse 1 again. What happened? But the Israelites acted what? What's the word? Unfaithfully to God. So God is about cause and effect. The effect of a poor decision is you're getting whooped. Read on with me. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Verse 9, the Canaanites and the other peoples of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So Joshua's putting it out there and saying, God, why did you let this happen? God, we're your people. I mean, your name's at stake. Our name's at stake. The people of God. Why did you let this happen, God? You can see him, please. I mean, he's, he's on his face. He's broken because his, his country is, has been crushed. And, he, and he's, he's, he's repenting before God. And God says this. Look on, verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has what? What's the word? Sin. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have kept some of the devoted things. They have what? What's the word? stolen. They have what? What's the word? They have put them with their own what? Possessions. Verse 12. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turned their backs 
and they run because they have been made liable to what? And he says this, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. God's upset. And he says, hey, unless you find out who took the things that weren't supposed to be taken when this battle took place, I'm going to destroy this. And he says, you know what? You are liable for destruction. God's upset here. And the reason he's upset because someone in the camp took a possession of the other people, took it to their tent and hid it. And so God's upset. He said, unless you deal with that and you remove the things that were not supposed to be devoted to, to, to the other people and you get it out of the camp, then there's a curse on you. So God's upset. He cares about what we do with his resource. He cares about what he feeds us into our lives. He wants us to handle whatever he's given us, possessions and finances and whatever those are, in such a way that honors him. So the Bible says this. It's an interesting account. It's the only account in scripture where this happens. God says, I want you to find who that man is, that person is. So there's this picture. Now, keep in mind, Israelites were millions of people. And so God says this, he goes through this litany, he says, I want every tribe of every Israelite, line them up, and I want them to walk in line, bring all their families, bring all their clans, bring all their tribes, I want them all to walk, and Joshua, I want you to stand there, and when they come across, I'm going to find out who that is. So all the Israelites gather, all of them together, all the tribes, and they begin marching, and so they're marching, they're marching across, and as soon as it gets to the tribe where this person is, God says, Stop! And so he says, that tribe. And so that tribe is pulled out and the other tribes are like, "Woo! I'm glad I'm not in there. And then he says this, first it was the tribes. Now he says, I want every clan of that tribe, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And they're beginning to march. Now keep in mind, there was one person who had stole things that weren't devoted to him and he knew who he was. So the next time they went from the tribes and now they say, I want every clan. So all these clans go marching across. And they're marching across, kids, families, mothers, daughters. Stop! That's the clan. And so all the other clans get tossed away. And so there's just this continual march. And now here's one clan that's left. And out of this clan, there are families. And so out of these families, the families of this clan, they began to march. But meanwhile, there's one man in this group by the name of Achan. He knows what he did. Started with tribes. It went to clans, and now it's families. And now there's hundreds of families, and they're marching. By this time, he's kind of like this. You know, just <laughs> his family comes across, stop! That family! And now it's down to this one man who has a wife and has some children. They're the last family. And by this time, he knows what he did. And by this time, she's probably looking at him because she knows she didn't do it. And they're looking at them because they knew they didn't go for the battle. And now you have this picture, this one family. And by this time, this one family, Aiken's family, and by this time, he's, you know, it's when you don't want to look at someone, he's coming marching across. Stop! And he points to Aiken. So you're the man. You're guilty. You're the one liable for destruction because you acted unfaithful. Picture this for a second. Thousands, millions of people are gathered on this side. One man stands out. 
God calls the whole nation and family out because of one man's sin. So Achan is there. There he stands. He's guilty. Look what happens next. Look at verse 20. Chapter 6 and verse, or 7 and verse 20. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and the wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. So picture this. Here he is. He's standing there. He's guilty. Can you see the looks from all the clans and all the families, all the tribes? You're not supposed to do that. You didn't handle God's money, right? They're all looking at, there he is. There's the silver. There's this robe that he thought was more valuable and the silver that was more valuable that somehow if he took it and he controlled it, that he would be better off him handling this instead of not doing what God wanted him to do. In this moment, all the eyes of Israel and him, and there it is. He sold out for that. Look what happens next. Verse 24, then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Think about that statement. Why did you do this? Now, let me just back up and just retreat from this for a second. Imagine if you were that father or if you were that husband by the name of Achan. It's bad enough, number one, that you sinned against your God. I tell you what, it would break my heart. If there was something in my life that I actually did in this community and I had to go before this community because of this, this sin in my life, it's bad enough that, that it's in front of all these people, but it would break my heart if I let my family down. It just would. So here's this man that was once a, a man of God and he thought that he would take this possession that he shouldn't have and control his future with gold and money and make decisions that would somehow benefit his family better than if God could just care for him. And there he stood. And look what happens next. In front of all these people in the Valley of Achor, in front of his family, with the gold, with the cattle, look what happens next. Then Israel, verse 25, did what to him? What did they do? Stoned him. And after they stoned the rest, I had stoned the rest, they burned them. The family, I just because of a dad's act, Then it says this, over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. There's a reminder there to this day of a man who was walked into a place that he wasn't supposed to be, stole something, and he was liable for destruction as a result of it. Let me just pause and say this, men. If you're married in this room today, you are the spiritual head of your family. 
ultimately you take and listen to your wife and you take what she says about a decision and you take what you say about a decision and collectively you mix those together and you come up with the final conclusion in a biblical loving way. You are responsible for your marriage. You are responsible for the decisions that come out of your your family. You are held accountable. And so what you do as a family with your money, it's your responsibility, not your wife's responsibility. So whatever comes through your doors, possessions, finances, money, it's not your wife's call. And if you choose not to do with your resources what God wants you to do, you answer for it. I answer for it. She doesn't answer for it. So there'll come a day when you stand before God. How did you handle what I gave you? How did you handle the finances? How did you handle the resources? You will be held accountable, not her. So what's that mean? You better know what you're doing with your money. And listen, I know many wives in this room that wish their man would would lead in a biblical way. I know many wives in this room that want to do what God wants them to do. And yet they say, I can't get my husband. He doesn't trust. He doesn't believe. Listen to me, men. You are responsible. You, not her. And the decisions that you make will directly impact your whole family. God is serious about this. So no longer can you pass it on and say, yeah, we. No, not we, you. I was just speaking to men because I can speak to men like that. You're responsible for your finances. You're responsible for what you do with them. God has expectations on the way that we handle our money. Well, let's find out what those are. Turn to Malachi. Please, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, let's see what the expectations that God has, how we handle our finances. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Look what it says. I, the Lord, do not change. Last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3 and verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned, where does it say? Away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But if you ask, how are we returned? Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. Look what verse 8 says. Will a man do what to God? What's the word? Rob God. And then he says, you have, you, yet you, you rob me. God's upset. He's angry. He's looking at this group. He says, I don't change. I'm a merciful God. And I extend mercy and grace. But listen to me. I'm upset with you. And they're like, what did we do wrong? He says, you need to repent and get back and get on the path, go in a different direction. What did we do wrong? He says, you have robbed me. But you ask, read on. How do we rob you? And tithes and offerings, God said. Then it says this. Look at verse 9. You are under a what? What's the word? Curse. The whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse or the church or the temple. The place that you're taught. That there may be food in my name. Then Jesus or God says this. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. 
And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Then he says this in verse 11. I will, what's the next word? Prevent. Look, he will prevent pest from devouring your crops, from devouring your business, from devouring your home, from devouring your finances, from devouring your health, from devouring your talents, from devouring whatever that. He says, I will prevent that from happening. And the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then he says this, then all the nations will call you what? What's it say? Blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let me do a little explaining here because I think it's important because we're all at different places in our walks with God. But regardless of where we're at in our walks with God, there's one primary obedient step that we need to take. And the reason I tell you this is because I'm held accountable for it too. Some of you are robbing God. And if you do, the word of God says, you are under a curse. You are under a curse. So back, let's back away. Husbands, fathers of families, what you determine you do with your finances and giving will determine whether or not there's a covering of blessing or a covering of a curse. You are responsible for it. I want to explain here what this is because we're all in different places. What's a tithe? In the Old Testament, they would have crops and they would go out and get these bushels of beans, these bushels of apples, bushels of fruit, whatever it was, wheat. And so they would have 10 bushels. A tithe is one out of 10. And so literally they would take it right away and give it into the storehouse so they could be given to the people, given to God as an honoring act that God, you gave us this. So nine would be left. But before they took these nine and bought something and paid their bills, they took the one immediately, the first fruit, and gave it into the storehouse. Storehouse, the local place of worship. An offering is on top of the tithe. It says, you have robbed me with your tithes and offerings. Some people in this room have never given an offering. They've given a tithe, but they've never given an offering. We're held accountable for the tithe. The offering is something we can give over and above. A tithe is an immediate gift. It symbolizes that God is the owner of everything. To us, it's 10% right off the top. For everyone in this room, we're no longer bound by the law. I've had discussions, and I've heard many people try to dance around this. Well, Pastor Jim, that's an Old Testament issue. That's, that's when we were under the law. Baloney. Let me tell you why it's baloney. Because tithe was a principle before the law was established. If you go to Genesis, Abraham, before the law, know what he did? He gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It's a principle that predates the law. Post-law, Jesus came and it says he came to abolish the law. So what do you do? You look for tradition. You look, have they continued since that time? In 1516 in church history, 1516, the Council of Trent, they established a law post the law of the Old Testament that said this. Now, we're not going to do this. If you don't tithe to the local gathering place, you are excommunicated. They took it seriously. So you have examples of pre-law, post-law. So it's a 10% right off of the top. Plus, it's been practiced for a very, very long time. 
since the law was even established. Plus, the grace of a New Testament theology doesn't abolish giving. I hear people say, well, that just, you know, God's a God of grace. He understands. It's been a hard week. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how much you make. It just doesn't matter. We're supposed to give whatever we have. There is no clause. There is no exception here. There is none. We're supposed to give right off the top, whatever that pay is, we're supposed to give to God. Some will say this, and we've all heard these excuses. Well, God will understand. You bet he will understand. He says you're under a curse. He knows what robbery is. Some of you even say, well, at least I'm doing better than I did three years ago. Three years ago, I gave zero. At least now I'm giving 3%. I'm on the path. It's like saying, well, three years ago, I robbed 10 7-Elevens. Now I'm only robbing seven. It's better. I mean, when you think about the logic that we use sometimes, listen to me, church. I know this is hard information, but there's so much blessing attached to it. It's unreal. The Bible says this, if we refuse to give, then the devourer will come upon our homes, upon our families, upon our businesses, upon everything we touch. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says it this way, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. There's a blessing attached to it. Instead of being, having a given in, out of just, just, oh, I don't want to give grudgery. Just, you just dread it. Bible says, be a cheerful giver. Because listen to me, when we give, we're blessed. Don't be the Dead Sea, be the Sea of Galilee. By the way, we are willing to give our money to the stock market and think that somehow that people who are called brokers can manage our money better than God can manage. I mean, it, you think about the, 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 the logic that we use. The first things, give the first things. That means this, not direct TV, not a new pair of shoes, not pay for the gym membership first. Well, I want to get in shape, Pastor Jim. You said you need to be people with discipline. And then go outside and run. It doesn't cost you anything. Well, I need a flat screen TV. Give to God first by the flat screen. Nothing wrong with the flat screen. Nothing wrong with the gym membership. Nothing wrong with their say. Something's wrong though if you're not giving to God first. Well, I need to pay my mortgage. Give to God first. You'll be surprised what happens to the mortgage payment if you give to God first. He promises he'll give us so much we can't handle it. Well, I need to pay the NIPSCO bill or they'll kick me out. Give to God first. If there's a pattern you haven't been given to God, maybe the reason you can't pay your NIPSCO bill is because you haven't given to God and your family's under a curse. Well, I, I, I got this golf membership and man, I like to play with my kids. I value my family. Listen to me. Give to God first. Go buy the golf membership. Nothing intrinsically wrong with the golf membership. I have one to Timber Ridge and it's a great family time. Plus it's a great way to refresh and there's nothing wrong. I'm not telling you shouldn't own things. What I'm saying is give to God first. Well, I need a vacation and we have this vacation plan, you know, at, at work. And they let us take like a little bit out of our paycheck every week so that when vacation comes around, we have enough for vacation. Listen to me. Let them take a little bit out of your check for God first too. And have the vacation on top of that. In other words, don't give out of your remains. Listen to me, Gracie's. I mean this with all my heart, but sincerity. I want you to find the blessing that comes as a result of understanding it's not your money, it's God's money. It has nothing to do with how much you make. 
Some of you will say, I'll start giving when I make more, then I have more money. Listen to me. That's baloney. The pattern has to start today. Just because you make more doesn't mean you're going to give. Give out of what you have. That is not an excuse to not give. Well, I'm not making enough to make, pay my bills. Listen to me. Give, give, give 10%. Give, give 10%. Well, maybe it would change if you tithe. That seems to be the case here. Their crops are being eaten up because they refuse to give. So these Israelites are robbing God, and he sees it. Okay, here's what that means to you and me today. If you're not giving at least a tithe, you're robbing God. It's an obedience issue. And I'm, tr- I'm not trying to manipulate. I don't know what you give. It's not like I go and say, how much do they give this week? I don't care. That's between you and God. That's your integrity. Your integrity between you and God, you know today whether you're giving. I just have to worry about Jim Brown. When I stand before God one day, I don't answer for you. I answer for me. But what I do answer for is to make sure you know that you're supposed to give. You're under curse, he says here. He says to test him in this. I love, I love this because it's the only passage in scripture that says God says, test me in this. And see if I will not give you so much that you will not be able to stop this blessing. Right now, there are people in this room who totally understand this. And I know a lot of you people. I know some generous people. It's like, you just give. It's just fun to give. It's like, and, and, and you have this face of joy. You've experienced it. It had nothing to do with your income. It's just been a pattern of your life of obedience as a discipline. You know, my, one of the, the best things that my stepfather taught me as a young man was that, Jim, write the first check to the local church to God. We were a lower middle class family. We went without a lot. But let me tell you, money doesn't make you valuable and it doesn't make you like you have en- don't have enough. We had so much just in each other. And so every week, I remember mom, she'd write the check, went to the church. And from the time I began to work as a 16-year-old boy, I've always tithed, always. It's not a question for me. It's just, that's what you do when you're Christian. You obey. And so for 34 years, I've been a person single and married. I didn't do it just because I'm a pastor. I don't write a check to Grace Community Church. I say, well, I'll give it to that church. That way I can get paid. No, I don't do it. it. It's been a pattern. I do it because God wants me to. He says to test him in this. Besides, financial partnership with God brings incredible blessing. Let me just give you a very honest moment. My wife and I, and I don't tell you this to try to manipulate you. I'm just telling you just to be transparent. We give 15% right off the top. Gross. It's not our net income. But by the way, do you think the government takes your net income and takes taxes out of that? No, they take it off the gross. So we write a check to Grace Community Church and we give to other ministries. We give a tithe, plus we give 5% more to Grace. And then we give to other people on mission trips. We have some missionaries that we're supporting. We have some good causes that happen, drilling some wells. We do over and above. And the reason we do it, because God keeps giving it back to us. It's just this blessing. It's like, and someone said, well, Jim, you got a nice house. You got, you got, your kids have nice clothes and you got a golf membership. Let me tell you, it's, I don't give to get that. But let me tell you, if God keeps giving, I'm going to keep receiving and I'm going to keep giving back. And it's not my fault. It's like, there's something wrong. By the way, let me, let me just say something. We make valuable decisions. We drive vehicles. My, my Jeep has 189,000 miles on it. It's got holes in the floor. Man, I love it. 
We got a van that's got 186,000 miles. I mean, it's not like we're out buying vehicles. But listen, if you're able to buy a Cadillac and a Lincoln, go buy it. Especially if you're given to God. There's nothing wrong with possessions. Enough said there. But here's the deal. 90% in God is always more than 100% in only us. For crying out loud, put God on your team. And some of you think, well, I don't have enough money. How am I going to pay my bills? Listen to me. You got it all out of whack. Repent and reverse it. Just think about this. We have the chance to put the all-time first-round pick of the universe on our team and our finances. And he's just waiting. It's like he's sitting on the bench. Put me in. Put me in. I don't need you. We're going to go with these seven. They're better. Listen to me. God's sitting on the bench. He wants on your team. The all-time pick of the universe is available to us. Put him on your team. Some of you just, oh, I can't do that. I'm better at managing my money. You will be a broker at the end. Malachi 3, verse 11 in the New American Standard says it this way. Then I will rebuke the devourer if you give so that it will not destroy the fruits. Then the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. I love the blessing attached to giving. So here's what happens. We give for a while and give 10%, and then we go periods of retirement. We haven't even been in church. And then we expect God to bless kind of how they're, because we haven't given. Listen, there's a blessing and a curse attached to giving. Men, I'm coming after you again. Fathers, husbands, I'm coming. It's your responsibility. Singles, it's your responsibility. Single moms, it's your responsibility. But as the spiritual leader of the home, you make sure, because if you don't make sure you're giving what God intended you to give, you will be held accountable and your decision will impact your sweet and precious family. You want to give them a curse or you want to give them a blessing? During the medieval times, the knights would battle each other. And they had these things that they would put on called gauntlets. They looked a lot different than this, but they were these almost looked like gloves. And they would put them on. It was called gauntlets. And they would come over top their hands. And they came up to about their elbows. And they would put them on when they battled as a medieval knight. And in order for them to get someone to fight against, they would stand before someone. And it's where we get the terminology, throw down the gauntlet. They would walk before another knight and they would pull off the gauntlet and they would throw it on the ground. They say, let's get it on. And so they'd throw off the glove. Another one said, let's get it on. Me and you. And if you wanted to go against them, you picked up the gloves and you said, let's do it right now. And so they would put, put back on the gauntlets and the other knight would put back on the gauntlet and they would go to battle. And you know what God's saying? He's saying, hey, He's throwing down the gauntlet. He says, test me in this. Let's go on this. Let's do this. I dare you to take me on your team. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Test me, big boy. And he's asking you to pick up the glove. And you're saying, okay, God, let's do this right now. He's screaming at you. 
Don't you think I know what you make? He's screaming at you. Don't you know I know what you need? He's screaming at you. Don't you think that you can trust me? Let's get it on. Let's get it right, right here. You and me, throwing down the gauntlet. Try me, test me in this. And he's screaming. Do you think I'm going to leave you short if you take this test? Do you think you're going to regret giving? No, he's saying, there would be so much blessing, you won't know what to do it. And there are people in this room that understand, if I could just rip some hearts out of those people and put it in you, and they could tell you the stories, they would tell you, get it on, get it on, get it on. Listen to me today. This could be the turning point in your life. This is where it could turn all around for you. This is where, finally, you could find freedom and not be the Dead Sea, but be the Sea of Galilee that receives and gives away. Do you want to be like the senior dads after they jumped into that water, teeming with muck and stank? See, an offering is even above the tithe. Some of you have never given an offering. Some of you right now, you're so ticked at me. If you wish you could get out of here and just not, listen, let's get it on. That's what God's saying. I'm not saying it. God's saying it. Let's get it on. Listen to me. The offering's even above the tithe. Some of you are really good at, at tithing. But listen, for those of you who give an offering, you understand, you see a need and you give, you don't tell anybody and you bless somebody. Let me tell you, for those that give, aren't you more blessed to give than to receive? the tithe is supposed to be given to the local storehouse where you're being fed. Galatians 6.6 6 says that some of you are like, well, I won't give Salvation Army first. No, it goes to the church first, not a parachurch. You want to give to a parachurch organization? Give an offering. Some of you say, well, Pastor Jim, I give my tithe through serving. I volunteered for Kids City for 49 weeks last year. Well, praise God, that's called serving, not giving. Quit trying to control your giving too and designate it. I don't see it here. It just says give it and trust the spiritual leaders of your church. Some of you say, well, I'll give and I'll designate it. I want a new pipe organ at Grace Community Church. That's the only way I'm giving. And you try to control your giving. Listen, there's no control here. It's given freely and say, I trust the spiritual leaders of the local church and I, I'm being fed by them and I trust that they're listening to God and I'm just giving it and releasing it. A generous man will prosper, the word of God says. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Don't be another Aiken. It's time to quit hoarding. By the way, it has nothing to do whether you're single, married. If you get a paycheck, you give to God. The Bible says this, that in heaven, God said, if you test me in this, there's this beautiful picture in heaven that he opens the floodgates of heaven. It's like, there's this, this blessing box. It's like, he says, and if you give, test me in this. He throws down the gauntlet and says, let's get it on. He says, this is available to you. All this blessing is available. And it's not just money you get back. It might be wisdom for a business principle. It might be a health issue. It might be a good deal on a car. It might be someone canceling the debt at a hospital. It's not just like getting money back. 
It happens in a variety of ways. It might be landing you a job. It might be allowing whatever you're touching to be blessed to impact the kingdom. But you know what some of us get? Instead of getting a floodgate of it, we get like a trickle. It's like, God, well, I gave you 2%. And God's saying, listen to me. I don't want to just give you a trickle and a spoonful. I want to give you all this. Open up the floodgates. Let me bless you. God is waiting to bless you. Open up the floodgates and give. God, help us today. I know, God, I'm a human being. Some in this room are just ticked at me right now, and I don't care. God, this is truth. It has nothing to do with Old Testament or New Testament. It predates the law. But what it has to do with is a heart issue. Some of us got some work to do. And to be quite frank, God, I am so tired of excuses that people leave. And so are you. I pray, God, they would say, let's get it on, God. Let's get it on. Lord, I pray that men, husbands in this room, would lead well. I pray that they would do what you called them to do and be obedient. Jesus, I pray too this. I pray, God, we wouldn't walk out of this room and say, well, I'm not going to that church because they have to talk about money. Well, we do talk about money because you do, God. Help us to be a faithful bride. God, I don't want to stand before you one day and represent the Brown family and say, this is what I put my family through. I want my children, I want my wife to say, I'm proud of you, Dad. I'm proud of you, hubby. And I want you to say, well done. God, may we release what you've already given us. And may we not be the Dead Sea, but the Sea of Galilee. Thank you, God. We're about to give right now. And by the way, I I mean, I don't know what you give, but I care what you give because it's important. I want you to live to your redemptive potential. So does God. So as we close this service, you know what we're going to do? We got these big old offering buckets. And I understand this. I understand that some of you give every two weeks. Some of you give once a month. Some of you don't give at all. Because only 3% in the local church actually tithe. That's the overall statistic, 3%. So that means 97% of church people who are Christ followers have the curse on them instead of a blessing. I choose to lead my family well and ask for God's blessing on it. Men, husbands, what are you choosing? We're going to give you a chance to give. And I really believe this. It shouldn't be given like you're dreading giving. There's this picture in scriptures to be joyful givers. It's like, it's not ours anyhow. It's God's. Let me ask you that. Don't you think our God is worthy of it? My hope is that you would give your life for God, not just 10%. So we're going to sing a song here and we're going to give you a chance to give. And I know that some people are already given, so you might be left out. It's okay. I understand. But listen, what would happen if we began to give and we dropped our money in the bucket and we had to crawl over something and we gave it and we said, woo! Or we did a little jig. Woo! Blessing! And not curse. So there's the buckets. You can give. And I know some are going to leave because you're mad at me, but I'm okay with that. But here's what I long. I love you too much to not tell you the truth. 
So sing, give, hoot, holler, dance, do a jig, do a cartwheel, high five someone, give an offering as we sing. When we recognize that it is a